Hey everyone, it's James Davis, uh, Director of Academy from uh, Pax8 here in Asia. And I've, I've got with me Tim Warren um, from Ambit. Um, and I'm really excited to have a discussion with you, Tim. So tell me about Ambit. I see a few things sitting beside, uh, beside you in your head there on the wall. And you were just yeah. telling me about what they were. Tell me about the business and what you do. Absolutely, yeah. So these are birth certificates for the conversational AI chatbots that we've created for many businesses over the six years that we've been in operation. So we kicked off in, in 2017 just as conversational AI and chatbots were becoming to be, uh, becoming a thing. So we're a little bit ahead, a bit ahead of the pack there. And we've been working with larger businesses, so we focus on businesses typically with hundreds or thousands of employees, and we automate customer service at scale. So we sit on a website or through Facebook Messenger or other messaging channels, and what we do is we help answer those 80% of questions that make up the bulk of the um, the bulk of the inquiries that uh, that people have. So um, we've got uh, we've got around 30 brands that we're dealing with, and uh, we have just kind of come into this environment where all of a sudden ChatGPT has alerted people to um, what can actually be done with our kinds of technologies. And fortunately, again, we're ahead of that uh, ahead of that technology. So we've been working in this area for about 18 months. And I know that's what you want to talk about today. Well, yeah, like I got to meet you what, was two or three weeks ago now when I when I was doing the road yeah. shows over in New Zealand and one of, the, one of our partners and you, you did a presentation at our umbrella umbrella partner lunch. And it really, really sparked a lot of thoughts. And the, um, you, you shared some very different insights that I hadn't been hearing in these conversations around like chat GP and this sort of AI. So mm. I really wanted to get you on today to, to talk through that and share some things. And what I, what I thought I'd start with is a lot of people don't really understand with where this technology fits because it's so new. Um, and you, you, you explained it quite well. Um, around how, what it actually really is, because I think the AI terms being thrown around a lot. Could you sort of set the scene where this sort of chat GPT, conversational yeah. GPT stuff sits? Yes, yeah, so first maybe if I can just talk about the space. So there's natural language processing and understanding, NLP and NLU, and that's been around for some time. And that is a way of really just understanding the words that people are saying and working out it's what we call an utterance, working out what they want to achieve, and that's what we call an intent. So chatbots to date have either been push button, that's not really a chatbot, where you say um, check order or check status or something like that, and that just uh, is really like an enhanced version of Clippy from those, of, um, those who remember Word and Excel, that thing popping up down the side there, um, through to NLP, which is actually understanding what people's saying. Uh, what changed was uh, in around 2017, an important paper came out in research around uh, natural language processing, and it introduced this concept of what are called transformers. And a transformer uh, is simply a new way of understanding what people are talking about, but not only understanding what people are talking about, but actually generating responses. So in general, GPT, which is generative, means it can create something, Trans, uh, pre-trained, which means you've given it information before, transformer. So it's the use of that technology. This is not new, but it's newish. So that it kicked off in around 2017 
when research companies started working on what we call large language models and structured in a particular way that could be very effective at not only understanding, but giving incredible high quality results. So while I said it's not new, what's changed recently is the commercialization has got to a stage where with you know, huge and easy access to essentially supercomputers through, uh, through the likes of AWS and, and Azure, these uh, pr levels of processing power are now available to companies that can start to build a, uh, a model that can charge money for it, essentially. So if we cut out a few steps there in the process. So GPT itself has been around for some time. A company called OpenAI started funding uh, fundraising a while ago and really delved into how to make money out of these models. And they came out with GPT-1, GPT-2, GPT-3, and these were very much under the hood. So people like Ambit, we knew about them, and they were really experimental. Uh, and they've, yeah, they've been around for a little while, along with quite a few other companies. So GPT is a general technology, and it's a way of building a essentially a smart model for language. What changed at the end of November last year was ChatGPT came out. So what OpenAI did, they put a, a clever and simple front end through conversation on the front of their existing models of, of uh, GPT-3. And they released that publicly, and that was extraordinary. They made this publicly, um, publicly available technology that could do incredible things. So companies that have been in the know, like Ambit and, and a lot of others, had been working on this technology and bringing it up to the level where it was ready to uh, meet the needs of our customers. OpenAI took a different approach because they had a lot of money and they opened it up to everyone. Now, why would you do that? You do that because you want training data. There's a bunch of different training data sets that you can use. So the core one is the internet. So if you want to give really smart answers about things, you could say, well, I want to train it on data from NASA or data from MIT. It's going to be able to give science-related answers. That's all very good. But that's not really what OpenAI did. They said, well, let's train it on everything. So and that's the concept of a large language model. Large is a bit of a euphemism. These things are enormous. Uh, a model might be a terabyte in size. It could be larger. And that is to answer questions from really simple questions like, uh, what's happening? Or um, you know, who are the biggest companies in the world? Uh, and it will give you a conversational response through to write an essay about the relevance of George Orwell's Animal Farm today. And it can do a very good job of all of those. So to be clear, the models that are out there, once a model is trained, they are enormous and they do not have live data in them. So if you say to a model, a typical model, what's happening today, it doesn't know. Or it will give you an answer from a couple of years ago. And uh, that, is, you know, that is a limitation of the way these models work. That will be overcome in time. So as that has changed in a, a couple of months ago, when you put a great tool in the hands of a wide array of people, you start discovering all of the amazing things that, uh, that it can do. And these are, I assume, some of the things you want to talk about. First up, people are, were using it as kind of like a, a search engine that was quite chatty and gave you a, a nice response as opposed to just a list of answers like a, a Google search might give you. And then people worked out, well, you can use it to generate content. Now, between you and me and the rest of your audience, uh, at Ambit, we've been generating a lot of our content, not only social content, but things like job descriptions out of GPT 
our own GPT technologies for over a year now. Everyone started working this out in December and January. One of the things that happened is that short story websites around the world got flooded with relatively low quality, automated, automatically um, generated short stories. And uh, I'll come back to my short stories later. But content all of a sudden becomes free or almost free. So the question is, where is the value that humans now bring? And that's something I, I think we should have a chat about, which is where do humans fit in the world where content can be generated automatically? What is it that people should be doing? It's a huge challenge. It, like that's, that's one of the things that I discovered when I was playing around with chat GPT straight away is that you could get a lot of information on your fingertips. I did a video a while ago for MSPs in particular of here's some of the things that you could shortcut some time in, but things that I quickly noticed was unless you were a bit of an expert, you didn't know how valid the information was in the first yeah. place. Yeah, so you, you, you highlight a good point there. So there's, there's, there's two points of failure when you're using AI. So there's the, if, assuming humans are using it, right? It's not running itself. So you've got the human putting something in and you've got the human taking something out. And so let's delve into those steps a bit. So the human putting something in, first they have to understand the task, right? So that's, a, that's an existing challenge that you have. For instance, let's use the example of a law firm. A partner gets a job write a legal opinion for this company about doing this particular thing. Standard commercial kind of legal question. And uh, so when you get asked that, the person receiving that, call it the, the, the intermediate lawyer in the law firm, they have to understand what the partner means. So there's a bit of question and answer, backs and forwards, etc. So there's that step. Now, if the junior or the intermediate then passes that on to uh, they either do the work themselves or they pass it on to another person. There's an interface, right? If that interface is with AI, then the person who's taken the brief and then is then putting it into an AI, we call, there's a couple of words we use, either an AI coach or a prompt engineer. So an AI coach would be someone who has um, extensive access to the use of AI and they can control lots of things and they can what we call fine-tune. Uh a prompt engineer has got an AI instance like ChatGPT and they have to work out how do I describe the problem so it's defined enough so that I get a good answer and I give it the sufficient data so it can you know, respond based on that data and I give it enough freedom so it can give me a quality response. So there's that side. So that's setting up the AI for success. Then the AI does its job and you get some kind of an output. Then you've got the AI edit. So taking that data, you need to validate it. And I want to flag something here we talked about when, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, which is that a lot of these models, if you don't give them sufficient information or define it well enough, it just makes up an answer. And it's very believable. And the joke in the industry is that um, GPT is excellent at fiction. It's not so good at fact, right? So it's important to remember that. And unless you're working with experts along the process, the, the person putting doing the, the engineering, the prompt engineering on the way in, and the person editing and reviewing on the way out, then you can end up with very believable nonsense. And I think you saw that to great uh, example when uh, it was shown that um, Google's Bard and in fact ChatGPT gave the wrong response to a couple of uh, a couple of things. Now this is not unexpected. 
this is all of these technologies are in a beta phase, and anyone who's tried to use them verbatim in a production environment mm. is sorely mistaken. And this is probably the warning number one for for your audience might be if you take you put questions in as you initially imagine them into chat GPT or whatever the technology might be, and you take them out and use them verbatim, then you're going to be, in AI terms, hallucinating, giving entertaining but probably wrong answers. And this is where it gets a problem. It's very hard to tease out what's accurate from what's completely made up. And some of that skill goes into each end of the human in the loop. Remember that term. So the human in the loop is defining the problem and setting it up for success and providing sufficient data so it can do a good job. If you don't provide data, it'll just make something up. Because like I said, it's very good at storytelling. At the other end, you then need to go through, like a newspaper editor who has received a story, and what do they go through and do? They go through and they fact check. They fact check to say, is it current? Um, have we verified this against a couple of sources? What are those sources that we're using? Are they primary or secondary sources? Um, what are they? If those steps are not done, then you do not really understand the content of what's going out. So that's that next stage, which is you need to review and understand to a higher level. Now, remember, the machine has no will or intent or plan. The machine doesn't intend to hallucinate. It's simply the way that they work. And this has been discovered by, by accident. It wasn't planned behavior. And this is, this is a key point about the technology. It's a fundamentally different non-deterministic technology. It's not if, then, else. If this, then do that, otherwise do something else. You put in a question, and you can get different results every time based on what it's learnt, new data that's come in, just whatever those things might be, whatever the variables might be, you can get fundamentally different data. And I, and I had a little bit of experiment before this call, which is where I, I asked it a little bit about you, and the first time it came back, and it gave me oh, a reasonable, uh, a reasonable description of uh, of someone in your organisation, but it wasn't you. But it gave you credit for that, and I think that's really cool. Um, again, it's it's some good fiction. Um, and if it was fiction, it writes very good fiction. Make up a story about this; it's going to do a fabulous job. There's no fact checking to be done because it's fiction. So that's the caution there. Now, what I'd say is, there's a, I actually did a LinkedIn post. You might include when you when you forward this round um, today. Someone put together a list of things. This is a governance level discussion. This is a board level discussion, and you need to understand how we're including this in our organisation at a whole level. Because what I can tell people, if you've got an organisation that's any more than a few people, someone in your organisation is using this technology. You don't necessarily know who it is and uh, is starting to affect the output from your organization or the internal documentation that you're creating. Uh, even, again, this, this technology can not only create language but code, so it can write computer code. And Microsoft's been onto this. They bought GitHub a little while ago, and they can now use that with Copilot to automatically generate sections of code. Well, the next step is you just describe the entire functionality of an application that you want, and the entire thing is created. But again, there's a validation step that you don't understand. Um, and you can only understand it at the moment through testing. I'm sure this will change in the future, but there's a couple of gotchas there for some of your customers. It's a really interesting point, like the input and the output. And I can already see, like, just from that sort of expl explanation, you can start to see the business risks. And, mm. and that thing that you just highlighted, this 
going to be someone that's using this technology already inside your business. Yeah. From my experience so far, it's generally the younger, more junior people that are using yeah. using this. So, to your point, do they even know what to ask it? Mm. And then on, on the output, like you said, it writes really good fiction. How will they know what what's right and wrong? And my um, my experience of ChatGP in particular, even when I asked it for its sources, it won't tell me. No. It won't tell me well, where, where it's come from. It's it's not the way language models are built. In fact, one of the fascinating things is if you look at the way these are trained, they actually learn more like the human brain than the way uh, other, you know, early, call it um, deterministic um, data processes learn, which is where there's actually a, a bit of data and you could extract something. So if I said, hey, James, tell me, what are your ref references for how you learned the concept of yellow? You'd be stuck. And for good reason too, because you probably learned it from your parents and repetition is what showed you what was important. So this is where the statistical element of computing comes in. And uh, again, this is not new. It's just that we've got outrageous quantities of computing power now available. And there's been some advances in the ways that we think of it, the way we glue this data and the structure together. And, uh, it will require a next evolution of the technology to be deeply referenceable. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of solution that we at Ambit are looking for. So uh, we, we're approaching things in a little, uh, slightly different way. And I'll give you an example. There's a few companies doing this. So you've got a core of data. And uh, under one model, you can say, let's bring all this data in from all over the place and let's layer it up. There is no one distinct source of this data. Right, so referencing becomes irrelevant because it's got the kind of the human brain approach. The other way, and that's kind of top-down, uh, top-down statistical approach. The other way is to, to build things up and find primary sources and then support it with background information. And it's harder and it's slower and it, it takes longer, but it can be accurate and it doesn't hallucinate. So that's that's quite critical. So when you combine those approaches, you get a very powerful, um, a very powerful thing. So one of the things that you can do is that you can run the one process to get to an outcome, and then you can say, "Hey, go and validate this outcome from primary sources." And so you can actually run that backwards into versions of this technology to go and explain references. But if you don't build it that way, it can't really be done. And I think going back to that question you had. You've got juniors almost certainly in the organization because if there's something I can tell you having been a junior um, is if a new technology comes along and you spend some time with it, you're not a junior anymore. You're an expert. And that's what juniors want to become pretty quickly. These, uh, you know, if, you're, if you're an SME, if you've been using ChatGPT since the day it was released, you're as much of an expert as anyone um, who hasn't actually built it. So this is a great way for people uh, to get a step up in their career so the junior shows it to the intermediate the intermediate shows it to the senior and the senior shows it to the executive or the board right uh, that's a risk why the juniors won't wait they will move forward it's like your kids they'll run to the street and uh, you and me we have to chase after our kids and grab them by the hand and, and take them back teach them a lesson do they learn that time no but when that when that child has uh, become an adult, they know not to run into the street. Not from any one particular example, although maybe if it was particularly traumatic, uh, but they don't have a referenceable knowledge. They have a general knowledge. 
Now, this is the difference. If you want to create quality, professional, accurate, academic-level data, you have to reference. You have to understand where that knowledge has come from, and for good reason. I think it's part of the yeah, it's part of our our approach to building knowledge. It's it's a gap currently in the use of this technology. But what I can assure you, and and your listeners to this, people won't wait. Those eager juniors who want to be experts in it and are rapidly becoming. I follow a lot of these people, and they're way ahead of me. I look at the mistakes and the hurdles they're coming up with, and I use that as, I guess. Uh, wood for the fire in terms of how do we solve those in an enterprise setting? So knowing that these juniors are running around it and you mentioned the whole governance piece, it really yeah. is a business governance component and that's mm. that's the way I view it as well. What sort of safeguards and how do we how do we actually look at it in managing this sort of technology in whatever kind of businesses. I think law lawyers are a good example. It's a lot of things that will fall apart because of lack of references and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So I've been approached explicitly under that example, law firms who've said, hey, you know, we've got we've got juniors with a couple of years of knowledge um, out of law school and, you know, only, you know, a fraction of commercial experience are putting in customer details, right? There's not only accuracy, there's privacy and security and data control um, and data custodianship. Those are the kind of things that are really worrying. So, uh, well, first remember that it will be, not only it will be done whatever you do, so you can't stop it. This is like the march of the calculator in the 50s and 60s, Texas Instruments comes out with a calculator. They take it to the moon Every, um, every, every person in the university wants one so they don't have to remember their times tables or their logarithm books anymore. And then it trickles down into, into the schoolroom. So uh, I saw something the other day about uh, a march of teachers against the use of calculators. There's no point for a couple of reasons. This is going to move faster. It's already the fastest moving technology in, in, in all of human existence, right? The, the adoption of ChatGPT, I think we talked about uh, 100 million users within a month. Um, it outstrips just anything we've ever seen. So um, the, the question is so how to deal with that. You need dedicated resource. In, in a, any company above 30 or 40 people, if you haven't got someone who's spending almost full time on understanding how this is going to impact your company uh, or, you know, kind of FTE, spread it out across the team, then you're going to be behind competitors. But you're also probably going to be doing dangerous things. You're going to be releasing customer details out into the wild. As soon as you put in, for instance, we'll use the example of a law firm, customer A dealing with firm B. You put in customer details into chat GPT, that's gone. That's out there. It's in the mass training data for the entire world. Now, Look, I haven't delved into the details of how ChatGPT works, but I certainly know they've got all of the prompts, everything that's ever gone in. And that is the essence of why they're running it, because they want that data. They now know the issues that that customer has. You cannot reverse it. You cannot engineer that out. It's very hard. Do you know that under GDPR, you have that right to be forgotten? Well, ChatGPT has been banned in Italy because they can't work out how to take that data back out. So what have they done? They've banned it in Italy. Now, that's not sustainable. There's VPNs and there's all kinds of things. But in the meantime, the government's taken a pretty heavy-handed approach. That is just the beginning of where things could go. I think you see some people will ban it till it can be proved. Uh, 
other countries will take a wait and see. And I know that New Zealand and Australia are probably learning more around the wait and see and see what happens. But if the US or the UK take a significant move in that direction, I think you'll see New Zealand and Australia um, moving in those directions. But also more widely, um, all of all of the states um, with any understanding of technology will be analysing this and looking to see how it's regulated. I don't know where it's going to be regulated. Mm. It's going to come from outside, and if firms aren't doing this to take responsibility for themselves, then there's going to be heavy-handed, blunt regulation of it. And the regulation will not stop the bad actors. So the good actors will probably be uh, constrained. So what I'd encourage people to do on that front is is learn about it really quickly. Uh, and it, it, like I said, if it's if it's not a board discussion, then there's a problem in the company. This is like culture. It, this is going to be as fundamental to a company as culture. And there's a you know there's a, a couple of jokes I like about this. Uh, be nice to the geeks because one day you'll work for them. Um, <laughs> that was said, you know, about uh, I think it was Bill Gates said that, you know. So um, that's a that's a really um, a really funny one there. But um, also you have to you have to learn about this technology because every company is essentially going to become a technology company. So even if you're in the space of advice. So Ambit is now able to create very high-quality advice around a certain level of legal areas. Even We're not a law firm. What have we done? We have trained on vast amounts of legal data, far more than any person. In fact, far more than any one firm, even with a 1,000 attorneys or lawyers, could possibly understand. And we can create opinions based on that without hallucination in seconds. So... If your company isn't understanding that you're going to be disrupted, you're going to then you're definitely going to be disrupted. You need to worry all the time. Don't fall for the blockbuster fallacy, which is we're too big to fail, or um, we do we're in a different business. Everyone's in the technology business. It's just you might be dragging dragging the cart instead of putting wheels on it and using a horse. It's really um, a point that really stood out to me. What you just said there was. People need to be investing time inside their firm, mm. understanding it. We spoke about law firm. It, m- most small to medium businesses probably aren't looking at this and they're probably yeah. not going to invest that time. And this is where that opportunity for our yeah. like partners, the MSPs, the SIs, to start getting your head around and start providing advice. It doesn't mean that you're going to be creating the models like Ambit as, a, as an example. But this is where that opportunity of being that sort of liaison and trusted partner, right? Mm. Yeah. So if you think early on, you know, I look back to probably a recent, a recent change would have been the move to cloud. So I was working with a a large um, investment bank about uh, be twelve years ago, and it was at the early stage of cloud adoption, and uh, I, you know however much I might have wanted to move into a cloud direction, it wasn't quite ready for the demands that a large financial services organisation had. So at the time, we didn't move down that path. But now, a lot of their services, and I'm still in touch with that company, are moving into a cloud environment. So early on, what you need to do is you need to find a partner who has done that digging. You know, So you, you work with a partner such as Pax8 and get some consulting advice. You know, It's probably someone to... First, brief the board and the executive. Work with a, you need to appoint an executive who's responsible for this. Typically, it would be um, either the CEO or the COO 
um, or someone in one of those very senior um, type of roles who's got an organisational impact. Uh, this is not this is not really a technology question at this time. Yeah. This is bigger than that. And I don't mean to talk down. I'm a technologist myself. Uh, CTOs are creating a problem that COOs are going to have to fix, right? Because CTOs are racing so far ahead at the moment. They're very excited. They're like kids in a they're like kids in a in a um, in a toy shop, right? And they have a lot of toys. And these toys they, these are power tools, right? So uh, the COO, being usually the voice of reason in an organisation, is having to bring in a measure of understanding. So what I would do in a medium-sized organisation would be task the CEO COO with creating a uh, a plan and an understanding. And that's where you'd you'd work with someone like Pax Eight around. Uh, around some consulting, around understanding risks would be the first thing, and the risks, and also then the opportunities. So let's make sure we don't blow something up, and let's let's make sure that we expand. It's classic SWOT, right? You can, in fact, you could type into G Chat GPT, "This I'm in this business. <laughs> what do I need to do?" And it's going to give you a reasonable idea of what to do. Uh, what you don't want to do is ask Chat GPT for advice from itself on how to regulate itself because it didn't exist when its training data was set up. So that's quite interesting. It, 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 it's not going to be particularly self-introspective. It knows a little bit about itself. But humans are quite good at this, and we're, we're quite good at understanding risk. So uh, I love those the concept of the Yoda sessions where, and I, I challenged my team some time ago. I said, uh, I need you to be using ChatGPT or a GPT technology in your daily role, otherwise I don't think we understand it. And I'm just interested to know. Or we have to make sure, don't put anything, any unique IP or any customer data in there, right? Any of that. But use it to generate, I've been using um, this to generate social um, social feed. I've been using it to generate role descriptions. Uh, when we welcome people to the company, uh, we use our own GPT tech to write those welcome notes. So most of what you see on there. So that's the opportunity side. But go and understand how each of you can use it and then each leader in the business goes to each of their teams and, and so on and so forth to understand. That's the power of kind of the, the crowdsourcing of where might this be used. And then assume you've missed something and then you need the Yoda in the room to say, hey, but assuming that, you know, that all those can be done, what have we missed? And you keep asking that question and you need to be asking that question, well, I would be asking it weekly. Uh, but you need to be reviewing that in terms of a technology risk on a monthly basis. Now, I think this will settle down. I think we're in a weekly innovation cycle at the moment. I mentioned this since we met a couple of weeks ago, and there have been two major changes in that time in this environment. Italy has banned the entire technology, and it's come out with the ability to plug into live data. Okay, so those are fundamentally different. Change in the regulatory environment, change in the technology environment. So even if you've got a monthly cycle, you could be falling behind. But first thing, talk to someone like yourselves. Uh, have an engagement around understanding the risks and opportunities and then ensure that you've got some way of understanding how it's impacting you on an operational basis. That's the first stage. The next stages will be derived from that kind of scoping level data and then you build it into a plan. I would be expecting any company that I was on the board of or executive of to be having a plan around how to be dealing with GPT technologies from an external risks uh, and opportunities point of view through to an internal risks and opportunities point of view uh, by the end of the quarter. I think if you weren't doing that, you're probably being negligent. 
that's really strong advice. Uh, yeah, and strong think, advice. I, and I see, I, I can see it too from like my playing around. I could see immediately like what you said around there earlier around. This is culture. This is cultural impact. This is at that sort of level. It's the the technology itself is going to change and adapt, but it's it's how we're managing the people around it and what policies that we have in place. Like yeah, if I boiled down what you what you said before, it's as simple as like yeah, we want to embrace it. And we want more people learning, but what it means is we need those policy and training around what sort of data and what. Yeah. What, what are we use? What are we allowed to use it for? And those safeguards on the other side of we've got those more senior people, fact like checking it and going, yeah, that's okay to use. That's not okay, and that has that sort of approval process, so that mm. we don't just use things that come straight from ChatGPT into live production. Absolutely, and I'll give you a, uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a classic example. So, say you had a whole bunch of customer data, and you stick it into a spreadsheet, and you do something with it. All good. That spreadsheet is probably Microsoft Excel. Now it's in the cloud. It's Excel 365. It's an excellent product, right, mind you. But it's stored elsewhere in the cloud. Do your privacy and your data processing um, agreements with your customer even allow that? Now, I'd say that in the case of 90% of, uh, of the time, they don't. However, you're probably okay with Microsoft. You know where they're stored. Etc. So it's on as you you can rely on their security and operational controls, etc. When you're putting something into a cloud service, you don't have a lot of understanding of where that even is, what country it's run in. And I can tell you where generic cloud services are run, wherever it's cheapest, because these things are ferociously expensive to run. Uh, you can have, you know, we, we've looked at the cost of some of the larger models. Um, just to get a single response could be costing you as much as a dollar fifty. Right. That doesn't sound a lot compared to a lawyer doing something for, say, $150 an hour. But $1.50 times volume is a big number. So if you've got 1,000 1000 requests a day, uh, you can be talking about thousands a day. And if the volume goes up from there, then you've you've probably got a problem, whatever the size of your business. So back onto the data security. In the case of uh, Excel or Microsoft, you're pushing data into that cloud. It's being backed up. Um, all of those kind of things, and you don't have full control of that. And just remember that um, under the way a lot of governments operate, uh, regardless of what your agreements with your users say, uh, the governments can access that data. So that's one thing if you're in the US, it's a US government. If you're not in the US, the US government probably still has access to it. And that's with the most safe and secure. And those companies that we trust, you know, like Apple and, and, and Google and Microsoft, I, I actually, I think we have to have a certain level of trust in, and I do trust them. I'm not aware of breaches that they've had, for instance. There's a lot of other players in the world. And anyone who's launching, if you've got the, if you're looking at something here, a GPT system that is cheap, there's a reason. Because you know the most valuable commodity now is data. Mm. So you should be paying for a service. If the service is, is, looks inexpensive, there's a reason because you're the product and your product really is in the form of data. So I think you hit on something there, which is how about a quick checklist? That, that's a, hey, what am I going to do in April, April 2023? A quick checklist of you can use it for this, don't use it for that. If you're not sure, ask here. There you go. There's a great starter. And that, that, could, be a, that could be a thought leadership piece right there, right? Um, the next stage is, hey, how do I discuss this with my executive board, broader team, 
the, the wider market. There's a next step of action that could be for May. And by the time you get to the end of June, the end of the quarter, you've got a bit of a plan that's coming to, into place for your organisation. This doesn't have to be overwhelming, but it does have to be done. And, and if I can just finish on a point there, I remember in 2017, 2018, I was trying to get up on the stump, as it were, uh, talking to, let's just call it executive and director level associations. And the overwhelming message there was, this is just not interesting to people. And they were talking about health and safety, like, you know, how do we make sure we don't have trip hazards in the workplace? Well, this is a trip hazard. It's just a different one. And the, the scale and magnitude of it could be every bit as big as having a physical safety problem. So, uh, you know, the fish rots from the head, but it also grows from the head as well. So if you're implanting that idea in the whole organisation, you know, all of these companies that are up here uh, are thinking about this and they're working with people like yourselves as well who can provide just a little bit of... Remember, guidance doesn't mean that you know everything. Guidance means that you're simply ahead and you're sharing your information. So if the PAX8 partners are able to share, hey, look, this is what we know. Let's start here. This is a this is a, the starter for 10. Uh, and then if you want to go further, let's do that together. Then that's going to head them in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tim. I hope, I hope all the people who are going to watch this have gotten some, some tips and tricks out of this and have, have a bit of a clearer understanding i've learned i've learned a lot again from talking to you so yeah thank really you it's been a pleasure it. well i'll get you back on next time and um yeah. we'll see everyone later on okay thanks james thank you